misjudges guy. I don't know what to do. Okay, Luke chapter number six is where we're going to be at this week. And uh, just to kind of get us on uh, uh, on track, on context of where we're at, we kind of took a, a pause, a break from our uh, our series this past two weeks. I don't know if it was a break or that we just kind of jumped ahead. We went ahead and covered those verses early. But the past couple of weeks, we've been uh, kind of an Easter theme or a uh, looking at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And two weeks ago, we were looking at the idea of expectations. And we saw that everyone had expectations for Jesus, and all of them had misunderstood him, yeah. right? All of them had the wrong expectations, and they were looking for the wrong things. And as a result, many of them missed out on blessings and things uh, that stood in, stood there for them if they would have just been letting God be God. Yeah. And for us in our Christian lives, a lot of times we have expectations for God, and we start trying to make him uh, do things according to our script and our storyline. And whenever we do that, we're going to misjudge and we're going to uh, miss out on what God actually has for us. Uh, Because in reality, what God is doing far exceeds any of our expectations. But if you think that he is going to do things the way that you want him to, the way that you expect him to, you will be disappointed at least for a time. But in the end, we find that God knows what he's doing. He works all things together, and he He brings about something that is greater than what we desire and what we imagine him doing. And so with the idea of expectations there, yes, it's okay to have some expectations. It's okay to have a desire or a plan or a will for your life or the way that things should go. But I believe that we should hold on to them loosely and allow God to do what only God can do. And not be disappointed whenever they don't work out, knowing that God is in control and he's working greater purposes. Uh, last week, what we looked at was some uh, some things that I know because of the empty tomb. And we see that the empty tomb tells us that Jesus is who he said that he was, that salvation is available because of his resurrection. We find that it proves his power. It proves that he's in control. Uh, it proves that he is able to do anything and that we can do all things through him. We can trust him. We can depend upon him. And after all of these things, we know that there's still going to be people who reject him, not because of a lack of evidence, but because of a hardness of their heart, because their will is against uh, accepting him. And so we learned those things from the tomb last week. And so this week, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be going back to where we uh, left off a couple weeks ago. So for those who weren't here, well, sorry, but... uh, But anyway, back where we were a couple weeks ago in uh, the book of Luke, and we've been going through the Gospels and somewhat going, uh, trying to go chronologically. I may be missing it occasionally, but trying to go chronologically and looking at Jesus' life and ministry on this earth, who he was, the things that he was teaching, and our series has been titled Refocus. We're trying to clarify, we're trying to take all the things that have blurred our vision and have distracted and got us off course and push those aside and see Jesus for who he really is. Get a clear vision of who he is because there are so many things in this world that kind of makes it fuzzy. A lot of times our preferences, our expectations, right? Uh, Religion and years of tradition and all kinds of different things will make it cloudy. It'll make it a little bit murky. And so we're just trying to peel those away and to refocus on Jesus and who he is. And uh, as we're picking back up on this theme here, uh, we're finding that Jesus is, in this passage, he's growing in power and in influence. 
He's been, he healed the leper. He healed the man with a palsy. Uh, he's done many great things here. There are multitudes that are coming out and following him. Lots of people that are hearing him teach. And as he is gaining influence, as he is gaining power, he's also, as I said in the first service, he's also gaining opponents. Yeah. He's finding people who are not happy about what he's doing because in a way he's stealing their thunder. They've had a, a position of power and influence for some time, and he's starting to threaten that a little bit. He's starting to underride that, or override that, I should say, because uh, they have used religion to elevate themselves. They've used re uh, religion to create themselves this nice little seat of power and of wealth, and everyone is looking up to these religious leaders until Jesus comes and starts associating with all the people that they have no time or patience for. Until the crowds of all the outcasts start coming and meeting around with Jesus, then they become offended by this. The people they never cared about before, all of a sudden they care about, right? And so these things are going on. And uh, in this passage that we're going to read today, uh, they're going to start actively looking for things to bring up against Jesus. They are looking for weapons to use against Jesus. And, uh, of course, us knowing Jesus as the Son of God, uh, they're going to be hard-pressed to find anything to use against him. They're going to have to start making it up, right? And uh, so what they're going to do is they're going to weaponize religion, and that's going to be our thought today, weaponized religion. And so Luke chapter number 6, starting with verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have ye not read so much as this, what David did when uh, himself was unhungered? And they which were with him, uh, excuse me, I read that wrong. And Jesus answering them said, Have ye not read so much as this, what David did when himself was unhungered, and they which were with him? how he went into the house of God and did take and eat of the showbread and gave it also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. By the way, if you're uh, just reading that through and not paying any attention, Jesus just asserted his deity. Okay? He just asserted his deity. He said the one who made the laws has the right to do what he will with them, basically. And so verse number six and it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. That's their, their goal. That's their motive. They want to find an accusation against him. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he rose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, or thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord, we come to you today. Thank you, praising you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for uh, each and every soul that's here with us this morning. Lord, we praise you for the time and the fellowship that we've had one with another. Lord, for the, the study during Sunday school and things. Lord, we just ask you now that you would uh, just settle in here with us for the next little bit. And Lord, that you would uh, drive out any distractions or hindrances. Lord, help us to focus on these thoughts, Lord, and that you've given these thoughts through your word. And just help me, Lord, to present them uh, clearly and biblically. And Lord, I just pray that you would, uh, through this, strengthen our faith, strengthen our uh, our priorities and looking to you first, Lord, and help us, Lord, to grow in our walk with you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that don't know you as our Savior, that today would be the day that they would call upon you, that they would put their faith and trust in you alone as the, their Savior to forgive their sins, to save their soul, to uh, provide for them that place in eternity, that security, and that hope which they need. I pray that today would be the day that that would happen. And Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen. So as we look at this passage, we find that Jesus is going about doing what Jesus does. He's going about shepherding his sheep, uh, leading his disciples about. He's going about doing good, the Bible tells us. And he is healing people. He's doing miracles. He's uh, preaching the word to the people. He is drawing the people of Israel away from their uh, powerless and uh, corrupted religion. It was something that God had started and that they had corrupted. And he is drawing them back to God. He is getting them back on track. And as he is doing this, he's making all these enemies that we've talked about. And so with that, he is on the one day going through the, the fields of standing grain, and it is a Sabbath day. That would have been the, the Saturday of the week. That was the, the Jews' high and holy day. And uh, anyway, it was a Sabbath day. And as they're going about, they begin to take the grains and they begin to eat the grains. And out pops one of these Pharisees. It's kind of funny to me as I'm reading this. I don't know if this guy's just kind of following along in the crowd. I don't know if he's like on a pole like a scarecrow looking and just waiting. I don't know. It's like the eyes in the sky or something back before the day. It, it, they'd have drones following him around or something if he was alive today, right? But anyway, uh, something happens here. And as he sees Jesus and his disciples plucking these ears of corn, these grains on the Sabbath day, he says, ah, gotcha. How is it that you do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath day? And Jesus confronts him and calls uh, calls out his motives, if you will. And he tells a story about David and how uh, David did that which was not lawful on the Sabbath, or not on the Sabbath day, but with the uh, the sacred bread in the temple. David was hungered. His men were famished. They were running from Saul. And to preserve life, uh, he ate some of the showbread from the temple, and God didn't strike him dead. God didn't punish him in any way. He didn't call him out in any way. Nothing ever became of it. And we don't see anywhere in the Bible that it's condemned or anything like that. They go on and Jesus seems to endorse it here. And he tells them here that they have their priorities a little bit reversed. They don't understand the purpose behind the law, that it isn't for condemnation, but it is to point people to God. We'll see that as we go along. And so then we find that on another Sabbath, that Jesus is there in the temple and he is teaching. And there is a man with a withered hand that is there in their midst. And I don't know if it was the Pharisees that brought him out as bait or if they just happened to eye him as he was coming into the synagogue that day. 
But anyway, they knew that this man with a withered hand was there, and they were excited about it. They were thinking, here is their chance, here is the time that we're going to be able to get him, because Jesus can't resist doing good. Right? He just can't help himself. If he sees someone suffering, he's going to do something about it and will get him. That seems silly to us. That seems messed up to us that the disciples were eating on the Sabbath day. Jesus was healing a man on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees were offended by it. People get offended by stupid stuff, right? But this is coming from our context, from our point of view, from our way of looking at this. But if we would put ourselves in their place for just a moment, that the Pharisees were very zealous of God's law. Very zealous of it. And so for us, something that we see as silly was incredibly serious to them. Because within the law, it said, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And they were looking at Jesus and they said, he is defiling the Sabbath. There's something wrong with him. And so in that, it kind of puts it into perspective just a little bit in seeing what they were looking at, how they were viewing things. And whenever we look at it as being silly, we could bring it up to a more modern day context. And I want to be careful about this because honestly, some of the things that we'll be talking about today may be controversial. Uh, if I didn't offend you last week, maybe this week, who knows? But anyway, do you think that we ever do anything similar to the Pharisees? Do you think that we ever do any of these things? Do you think we have problems with these? Worse. Yeah, worse, as Brother says here. And yeah, we still struggle with this. We have problems with this ourselves because whenever we start looking at the Pharisees, we like to bash the Pharisees, don't we? We like to look down on them and see because they're always at odds against Jesus. And we say, yeah, they're the bad guys. Jesus is the good guys. So we put ourselves on team Jesus. Don't we? Mm -hmm. And we say, we're with Jesus and the disciples. Yeah, Peter puts his foot in his mouth every now and then. He says some stupid stuff. But at least I'm not a Pharisee, which is exactly what a Pharisee would say. <laughs> Remember whenever the Pharisee was in the temple praying and he says, thank you, God, I'm not a publican. At least I'm not like him. That's exactly what the Pharisees say. But if we're not careful, we have that mindset, we have that point of view that I'm glad I'm not like one of them. I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee like so-and-so. And so as we're going through this, this message today, I'm going to challenge each and every one of you, as uncomfortable as this may be, to look at yourself, not somebody else, because that's what the Pharisees do. Because it's very easy for us to point fingers. It's very easy for us to say, oh, I know someone like that. I do too. Okay. And so we're going to be looking at these Pharisees and their weaponized religion that they had, how they were using religion to attack Jesus. They were using religion to attack someone else. And so we're going to look at some things that mark this uh, weaponized religion. Okay? Everybody still good? Mm -hmm. You want to check out before I get started? Okay. <laughs> So anyway, some things that mark weaponized religion. The very first and foremost one is it is extra biblical. Extra biblical. I'm not saying unbiblical. It's extra biblical. Because what we find here, as I said, that it sounds silly to us that they were going after Jesus for picking weed on the Sabbath. They were going after Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. But what they were doing was Bible-based. It was based on Scripture, and then they started adding on to it. They started growing it from that Scripture. Because the issue at hand was the Sabbath, 
And as I said, the Bible says, the law says, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Well, that's pretty broad, isn't it? And so what the Pharisees would do is to try to define it a little bit. Okay, the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. How do we do that? How do we go about that? And so what they proceeded to do is lay out an entire, uh, almost encyclopedia, if you will, of rules and regulations for how to go about doing a simple and sound scriptural principle. Okay? And so they started going through, and if you study this out and, and read some of their teachings and whatnot, how they defined it so meticulously, they said how far you could go on the Sabbath day. There's places in the Bible you read and it says a Sabbath day's journey. That's how far you could go on the Sabbath day without breaking their law. Okay? Jesus didn't, or God didn't specify that. God didn't uh, give them any number in place. He said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There are a few places in Scripture. He gives a few more uh, regulations for how to go about keeping the Sabbath day holy. But these guys added so much to it. Uh, they they linked it to your profession. If you were of certain professions, you couldn't do anything that was linked to your profession on that day. If you were a seamstress, you couldn't carry a needle with you on the Sabbath day because you'd be tempted to break the Sabbath. Okay? That's pretty goofy, isn't it? You, If you had a dirt floor, you couldn't drag a chair across the floor. You'd be plowing. Isn't that kind of dopey? Okay? Women couldn't look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because if they saw gray hair, they'd be tempted to pluck it out. That would be harvesting. <laughs> I'm being serious. These were their, their things that they would do. Uh, they, had, they had specified the weight that you could carry. You couldn't carry above the weight of a dried fig. Not more than the weight of a dried fig. Anyone ever eat a fig? Dried fig. Yeah, you can't load your fork too heavy, right? <laughs> and you get light forks so you can put more food on them, right? It, this is how they had made what God had intended to be a blessing. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? Why did God give them the Sabbath? He gives them the example just in creation. In six days, God created everything, and on the seventh day, God rested. Was God tired? He wasn't tired. He didn't need to rest. He was giving an example for mankind. Because guess what? He created mankind. He knew how they were built and what they were built for. And he says they are not built for a 24-7 work week. And he says, as a blessing to my people, I'm going to give them the Sabbath. So one day out of every seven, they're going to take a rest from their work. They are going to take a day that they can spend meditating on the things of God, spending time with family, and resting from their labors the other six days, right? Nowhere else in the world at that time had a day of rest. That was something that was specific to God's people. The Romans weren't resting one day out of seven, okay? None of the rest of the Greeks and all the rest, they weren't resting one day out of seven. They were working seven days a week because a lot of the times they were poor. They were uh, in a place where they needed that extra day just to put food on the table and to provide for their families. And for those who weren't in that position, this was another opportunity for me to increase my wealth, for me to gain more on that day. But God says, rest on this day. Your body, your faith, 
your family needs that day of rest. It is a blessing to you, and it's also a a way to test or to strengthen your faith. Because if I'm taking that day off, I'm saying, okay, I'm not going to labor this day. I'm going to trust God that he is going to provide for the needs of my family. I'm not going to work this day. I'm not going to labor this day because I'm going to trust God that he is able to profit me just as much through my obedience than if I would have worked anyway. And so it was a symbol of their faith. It was a way for God to bless them. It was a way for them to walk with him. It was a way for them to recover, a way for them to spend time. It was a blessing. But under the Pharisees, was it a blessing? It was a curse because they were constantly afraid that they were going to trip over one of these laws of the Sabbath that they had brought about and added to the things of God, afraid of offending. And apparently these guys were more than happy to jump on you when you did it. Right? And so for the Jesus' disciples, as they were plucking the corn, it wasn't that they were stealing it. It was set out in the law that they were able to go about and pick that as they were going and eat it along the way. It'd be like me going through an apple orchard, picking an apple and eating it. That would be okay. But don't bring your truck in and get a load. There's a difference. So it wasn't that he was stealing. It was that he was harvesting on the Sabbath just because they got a handful of grain and threw it in their mouth. That's that's messed up, isn't it? <clears throat> Jesus was a miracle worker. That was his occupation. And so for him to heal the man on the Sabbath day, he was engaging in his occupation. That's pretty messed up. To get back into their laws and the things that they were doing, it was even illegal if you were a doctor, if you were trying to treat someone, you couldn't attempt to uh, help their condition on the Sabbath day. You could only keep them stable through the Sabbath day, okay? So Kev comes in, he's got a heart attack, and I'm a doctor, okay? I can stabilize him, but I can't do surgery to fix him that day. That That's for another day. Are you all with me on this? And we laugh at it. We think this is kind of silly, but they had built all of this up around the Sabbath, saying that the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And this is what we are telling you that you have to do to be in obedience to God's command that you remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And they're like, wait, this is a full-time job just to keep all your rules and all of your laws. What have you done to what God had intended to be a blessing? And so as we kind of mock them a little bit for some of these things that are silly and stupid, we've already said that we're just as guilty as the Pharisees. Is there any time that we go extra biblical in the things that we proclaim and we preach. I've heard so much of it in my life. And I'm I'm fighting the urge, okay, to point fingers at other people. I'm not going to call it names, don't worry. But anyway, but this is the thing. As I go through this in my mind, I look and I'm like, how many of these things are based on biblical principles and then we have added our preferences and our traditions on top of these things and we have left God's purpose for why he had given us those principles, and we start enforcing those on other people, and we start policing other people, and we weaponize religion, and we turn something that God intended to be a blessing, to guide us in a path that's going to keep us from sin and destruction, and that's going to make us walk with him and 
enjoy his fellowship and we make a complicated system and all these different rules and rituals and things that we think that we have to do. And then we come back and say, but it's in the Bible in seed form, but what have you done to it since then? We're guilty of trying to force these extra biblical things on others. And let me say this, there is nothing wrong with us building from biblical principles and building on them. See, if the if the religious leaders wanted to limit how much they could carry, the works that they could engage in, how far they could travel, if they wanted to do that and they felt like that was going to uh, keep them away from sin, that it was going to draw them closer to God, that it was going to make them a better witness and a better person for him, if that was their motive and their plan behind it, then praise the Lord for it. It's good on them, right? And so if you have uh, all these standards and preferences and everything for your life and it brings you closer to God, then praise the Lord for that. Keep it up. Don't, don't let down, right? But where they went beyond is whenever they took their extra biblical positions and they weaponized them against everyone else. Right? I'll remind you, keep, keep your eyes on yourselves today, okay? Because we can always look at other people and say, oh, I know someone that's guilty of that. Yes, it's, it's you. Anyway, the second thing about weaponized religion. Second thing about weaponized religion. It is externally focused. It is externally focused. And so whenever we look at weaponized religion, the Pharisees were only interested in what could be seen and how things appeared. Jesus called them whited sepulchers. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He called them whited sepulchers. He says, you've painted up a grave inside its filth and nastiness and decay, but boy, it looks good outside. Okay? They wanted measurable metrics. They wanted some way that they could quantify their holiness. And so they said, we're going to put all of these things in place so we can say, look at how we're performing. Look at how godly we are. Uh, they were called out because they loved the greetings in the marketplace and they made wide their phylacteries. They did all these different things to be seen of men, right? We looked in the first service of Ananias and Sapphira. What were they doing? They wanted to be seen of men. It was the outward appearance. It was inward corruption. And so whenever it is concerned with the outward appearance, it wants to paint the outside. It wants to make it look good. I've given this example in the past, but it's been a while, okay? Uh, Les and I was traveling one time, and I had made reservations online, and we were going to stay at this hotel or this motel, okay? And I went online, and I looked online, and it was a beautiful motel, okay? And so we drive a couple hours for a moment. We're going to stay there for the week, and we pull up into the, the car park, and we get out. And yeah, sure enough, it's the picture we saw online. And what we realize whenever we get there and we open up the doors is that it was like an old 1940s, 1950s motel <laughs> that they set about two meters from the front of it and built a facade. And so they had like this beautiful log structure on the outside of it. And then they had a... Uh, two meters in the original structure. It still had the original windows. It still had the original uh, HVAC units that came out of the, the walls. Still the original brickwork. And I think it still had the original carpet. <laughs> it was filthy. It was disgusting. It was awful. But it looked good on the outside. And I wonder how many suckers, just like me, they reeled in because of the outward appearance. Right? 
And so this is what these guys were interested in. How do we look on the outside? The heart didn't matter to them. They could be thoroughly corrupt. They could be completely deceived. They could be full of all kinds of corruption. They could be full of anger and wickedness and malice and hatred. For heaven's sakes, they were trying to kill the Son of God. But look at how holy they were. And so it didn't matter how wicked they were as long as they looked the part, right? Matter as long as they looked the part. I can say the right things. I can uh, dress the right way. I can uh, go to the right places and stay away from the wrong places. And I can live my life in such a way that I appear to be the picture of holiness. And then my heart is thoroughly corrupt and rotten. My thoughts are only wicked continually. And all of it is a show in order to deceive everyone around me into thinking that I am something that I'm not. And these men, and I believe ourselves as well, had deceived themselves thinking that they were that facade that they had constructed. And so we see that it's extra biblical. It's externally focused. It's extremely comparative. Weaponized religion is extremely comparative. They construct this external facade so that they can judge by appearances and so they can compare amongst each other and say, look at how holy I am. All of their religion is vain and is worthless because it is about comparing with others, coming out on top, when compared to others, about the outward looks, about other people's opinions, about all these other things, and it is never about Christ. It is never about their walk and their relationship with Christ. Whenever we talk about it being extremely comparative, it's always extremely comparative amongst other people and never comparative with Jesus. Because Jesus is the standard. He is the metric by which we're measuring ourselves. And whenever I line my life up next to Jesus, I realize I am undone. I am wicked. Whenever, uh, I believe as Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, woe unto me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. This was a prophet of God. This was a man that was standing for righteousness whenever all of the rest of the people had turned against God and fallen into idolatry. And whenever he saw the Lord, he says, I am not holy. I am not righteous. I am not. He says, I'm wicked compared to Jesus. So it's really easy for us to compare, compare with one another and come out on top, isn't it? It's easy for me to bring all my uh, outward, uh, outward performances here, because that's what it is. It's a performance. All of my outward performances, the way that I look and all of the things that I put in place. And I can say, I do this and I do this. What do you do? I would never go. I can't believe you go to that place. You listen to them, right? And it becomes a competition. It is a comparison. It's extremely comparative. And so that brings us to the next thing is, is it exalts self. You notice how whenever we start comparing, we're always comparing downward. We're always picking people who don't have it together as what we do. We're always looking out at anyone that we have excelled past and we're justifying ourselves because at least I'm not like them. At least I don't do that. 
And we try to justify ourselves by these things, by these comparisons. And we, <clears throat> we can trace all this back to the original sin of pride, right? We want to exalt self. We want to be lifted up. Satan, whenever he uh, fell from heaven, he says, I will be like the Most High. He says, I want to exalt myself. I want to be lifted up. And so whenever we begin taking religion, building ourselves up with our religion, with how well we're performing, how well we've painted up this old sepulcher of death and decay that we are, uh, that we are in, whenever we start doing this and looking down on everyone else around us and seeing how poorly they're performing, we're using religion to benefit ourselves and to tear down other people. I like following through and looking at the disciples and how they they were, and maybe this is me comparing, right? But looking at the disciples and what they were doing, they were looking with one another, looking at one another. They were comparing amongst one another. And you remember how many times they get caught trying to figure out who's going to be the greatest? Even happens in the upper room and Jesus is washing their feet. That's going to wreck their brain, isn't it? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus lays aside his robe. He girds himself with a towel. He gets a basin out and starts washing their feet. They know that Jesus is the greatest. And he is washing their feet whenever they're trying to build a pedestal for themselves. He is getting down in the dirt and the muck of the world and washing their feet. Kind of puts things in place, doesn't it? Puts it in perspective. And so weaponized religion seeks to exalt self. And so whenever we start looking and lifting ourselves up and we say, look at how often I pray, how many chapters I've read, how often I attend church, look at how I do this and how I do that. I'm so holy. I'm so right. Look what a good Christian I am. Right? Is there anything wrong with any of those activities? Is there anything wrong with praying? Anything wrong with reading your Bible? You should be praying. You should be reading your Bible. You should be going to church. But why are you doing that? Are you doing it so you can say, look at how righteous I am? Are you doing it because you realize you are not righteous, you are not holy, and you need to seek after God and follow after him so he can cleanse you, so he can purge you, so he can purify you, so he can make something out of you? And so this is why I often say that it is not about religion. There's plenty of religion out there. The devil loves religion but it's about our relationship with God. It is about seeking him first, letting him take care of us, letting him guide us, letting him direct, direct us, setting our affections on things above because whenever we start looking at, around us and trying to use the things of God to exalt ourselves, to try to push other people down, then we're in trouble and we're following the same line as the Pharisees and every other religion that's out there. The next thing that we see here is that Weaponized religion excuses our own faults. I've kind of covered this a little bit, but it's amazing how blind we are to our own faults. We can paint ourselves up on the outside. We can do all of these uh, religious activities, fool ourselves into thinking that we're something that we're not, and we're completely oblivious to the corruption that exists in our own lives. Completely oblivious to the way that sin is taking root, taking hold deep within our hearts. Because as long as I'm reading my Bible, as long as I'm praying, as long as I'm going to church, as long as I am better than most other people, it doesn't matter that I have a problem with pride or with lust 
or with selfishness or with envy or with all these other things that are down inside of me. I can cover those up. No one's going to know about them besides me and God. And after a while, I'm not even going to remember them. I'm not even going to recognize them. I'm going to cover them up. I'm going to excuse them. I'm going to forget about them. And I'm going to be just as lost, or just, well, not lost. I'm going to be just as far away from God as I can be because of the corruption that exists inside. All the while, I look the part. And I've already bought into the own li- my own lies that I've been telling myself that I'm righteous, that I'm holy. That's what these guys thought. They thought they were doing God a service whenever they were persecuting Christians, whenever they were killing Jesus. We look at Apostle Paul. His religion had made him mad and made him crazy. He was approving the the stoning of Stephen while Stephen was praising God and was preaching to them uh, repentance and salvation of their soul. While he was doing that, Paul was approving the death of Stephen. He was going to Damascus to kill as many Christians as he could because they had violated his religion. And he was going to put them to death, right? We find that the disciples, while they were following Jesus, and I brought this one out recently as well, but the disciples, as they were following Jesus, they went to a town, and the people of that town refused them, rejected them, mocked them, ridiculed them, And Jesus' disciples said, let's call fire down from heaven and kill them all. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are of. That he came to bring life, not to bring death, right? And so they don't realize the things that are going on in their heart. They are oblivious. They are blind to their own faults because that's what it does, isn't it? So that brings us to our next point here. And I've kind of already gotten ahead of myself on this. But weaponized religion is excited about condemnation. It's excited about condemnation. Whenever I was reading through this, I pointed out in verse number seven, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. As they were watching Jesus, they were excited, saying, watch this, he's going to heal this man And we're going to be able to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. We're going to be able to use this as a weapon against him. And so they were waiting with bated breath, just thinking that this was going to be the time that they might be able to destroy another human being. You realize how wicked and how awful that is, that they would be excited about judgment coming upon somebody else? It's horrible, isn't it? Especially on the Son of God. But have you ever been excited about the prospect of God judging someone? They deserve it. No mercy, no sympathy, no love for that individual that is overtaken in sin and corruption and wickedness. And instead, you see them as worthy of God's punishment and his wrath upon them. Because, God, I'm thankful I'm not like that person. You weaponized religion. You're a Pharisee. So am I, because I've been guilty of it from time to time. We look at those people, the outcasts of society. Is that not who the Pharisees were looking down on? The ones who were rejected by religion, the ones that didn't meet their standard. And they relished in condemning those people 
along with Jesus as he sat with them. Right? I'm not saying we overlook sin. I'm not saying that we take a soft look on sin. But Jesus mourned. Jesus' heart was broken because of sin. He wasn't hardened and excited because sinners were headed for punishment and judgment. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God looked down on the wickedness and the corruption of this world, and instead of saying they deserve to burn, he looked down on them and he says, they may deserve it, but I don't enjoy that, and I'm going to do everything that I can to keep that from happening to them. Boy, that's a change in perspective, isn't it? I want to do everything that I can to keep that from happening to them. And we know that Jesus died for whosoever will. And there should not be a single individual on the face of this earth that we get excited about the prospect of God judging. That we relish the fact that they are falling into disaster and having hardship and difficulty in their life. They had it coming to them. I told them they shouldn't be doing that. Whoa. Because guess what? If we would back up just a little bit, take our blinders off, look at ourselves just a little bit, we are just as sinful and just as wicked as they are, even though we may not commit the same sins that they do. Whenever we start seeing ourselves as being righteous and as being holy, as being good, as not having any problems, whenever we think that we are God's gift to mankind, we've got problems. Isn't that what they thought? They thought they were God's gift to mankind while they were slaying God's actual gift to mankind. Everybody okay? And so weaponized religion is excited about condemnation. except for when it comes to ourselves, right? So my final thought on all this is weaponized religion needs to be exterminated from our midst and from our members. It needs to be out of us. We need to hate it the way that God does. We need to see this as a reality that we are Pharisees. We are self-righteous at times. We do look down on others. We use religion. We use our good works Rather than doing things to draw ourselves closer to God, we do things to lift ourselves above other people. We get our motives all out of whack. We start doing things for all the wrong reasons. And rather than going through and uh, serving the Lord in order to seek after Him and to seek that fellowship and that relationship with Him, to seek to be a witness for Him, we are doing all these deeds so everyone else will think great of us. So that we can look down on other people and say, well, look, I do this, but look at what they do. Right? We need to have it extinguished from our being. We need to get rid of it at all cost. We need to realize that even the most heinous of sinners, whatever, whatever it is that you consider at the top of the list, at the worst of the worst, you realize that you are just as guilty. You are just as susceptible to those kind of sins. And it is only by the grace of God that you are not that person. Mm -hmm. Say, well, I'm not a rapist or a murderer, right? 
Well, praise the Lord, you're not. But you know you have the same sinful abilities as what they have. You have the same corrupt nature that they have. And it's only by the grace of God that you are not them. Right? And that is not for you to say, oh, by the grace of God, I'm not like these people. There we go again, right? It is for you realizing it is God, not you. There is no goodness in me. We talked about in the first service that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags because guess what? There is always sin and flesh that corrupt even the good deeds that we do. You ever done something good? And then afterward, the immediate thought that came in your mind is, hey, look at me. The day of social media. You can't even have someone that gives money to the homeless person without taking a picture and posting on Facebook or Instagram, right? And we can laugh at that. We can judge those people, right? But the same thoughts enter into our heads. You say, look at me. Look at the things I'm doing. You know, you're going to bed early on Saturday night, and you're thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not one of those drunks down in the pub. You get up early this morning, I'm going to church. Look at the, all these hungover guys that's been out partying too hard. Glad I'm not one of them. We need to eradicate this from our minds and from our hearts. We need to get rid of this because Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. We are called to do what Jesus did. And if we're coming to seek and to save that which is lost, we need him to cleanse us so we can live as a witness in this world and have a love and a heart for the ones that are unlovable like us. If we're ever to see anything happen for the cause of Christ, if we're, able to, if we're ever hoping to make a difference in this world which we live in, it's not going to be by lifting ourselves up and saying we are better than everyone else. Because all of the righteous works that we do and all of the good deeds that we do are not to lift us up. It is to draw us closer to him. And if there's any other reason that we are doing it, our motives are flawed and we need to come to Christ. We need to repent of our sins. We need to call out to him and ask him to cleanse us and correct us and to get our focus and our motives right where they need to be. And that's probably something we need to do daily because that old flesh keeps coming right back and drawing us into the same ruts, into the same pits, into the same mess over and over and over again. And if you get your eyes in the right place, if you see Christ as holy and high and lifted up and you get yourself to the place where you say, woe unto me, I am undone. God, cleanse me, help me, and use me in spite of me then something can happen. But if I come to God, strutting my stuff and saying, look at me, God. No. That needs going. That needs eradicated. So the Lord can use us greatly, not because we are great, but because he is. But whenever we allow pride and selfishness, whenever we weaponize religion and we take it and we use it as something to keep people away from God instead of bringing them to God, we've lost the plot. And so we have to evaluate self. It's so easy for us to point fingers. 
go through and look at all the different people, all their extra biblical things that they are trying to force on other people, and I'm glad I'm not like them. Praise God. Whoops. Just like him. God help me. Let's go to Lord prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for this passage in Scripture. And Lord, how, how great it is for us to look at these passages and, and put ourselves on your side and to, to relish in the fact of, oh, we're on the right side, we're doing the right things and condemning the, the Pharisees. And Lord, we know how, how prone we are to allow those patterns and those thought processes to enter into our lives. I pray, Lord, that you'd, you'd make us acutely aware of these failures in our lives. Help us, Lord, not to weaponize religion, not to become proud and arrogant and lifted up, but instead, Lord, that we may humble ourselves, and Lord, that we can see ourselves as sinners, Lord, as we can look out at other sinners and, and once again just show them to you, Lord, rather than showing them ourselves. And Lord, I just pray that you do the needed work in the heart and life of every lives of every single person in here today. And Lord, I just pray that you'd work in my heart and life. And Lord, I just pray that you would just banish any trace of Pharisee out of me, Lord. And Lord, I just pray, thank you so much for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.